we are dispensing with our usual introduction because apparently it has triggered ads in foreign languages. So <laughs> has it really? Yes, we're getting some people, apparently, uh, some folks, depending on what part of the country you're in, have been receiving Spanish language ads uh, when I do my traditional introduction. Really? We'll just say, we'll give the redneck, well, hey, we'll see if it comes out in redneck. (laughs) Hey, 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 y'all, what's up? (laughs) It's Bubba and Uh, Buckwheat. It's Bubba and and, uh, it's my brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. Brother Daryl, my other brother Daryl. Yeah, well, hey, guys, well, welcome to Game of Crimes podcast. Uh, Let's see, we'll see if it uh, changes the algorithm. Hey guys, as always, welcome back. Uh, Just before we get started, just a little bit of quick housekeeping. Uh, Head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. We've been getting a lot of good comments. People are leaving some stuff. Spotify allows you to give comments on the episode. Guys, we really appreciate that. Also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We will have uh, the book when we talk about our guests listed there as well too. Go to our book page. We've got some fabulous books coming out and some fabulous guests. So gameofcrimespodcast.com. Follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. And also check out our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, who runs the uh, Game of Crimes fan uh, page with a you know iron fist and velvet glove. That's Just right. go to facebook.com. And just put in Game of Crimes fans, and you will be just, hey, answer a couple quick questions, get admittance to the inner sanctum where all the good stuff happens. But you know where else good stuff happens, Murph? Where is that? Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got some good stuff. We just, I think we did a really good case of the month. We talked about Mm -hmm. uh, the ambush killing of the deputy uh, in Clinton Broomer out in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, we talked about the escapee, which, by the way, Murph, uh, so folks, they got to listen if you're not on there. But uh, you actually got you were on the national news uh, talking with Lawrence Jones about that. I was. And it's uh, it's a very short interview, so don't get excited. But um, it's then we're talking about the fugitive in Pennsylvania, because since then, there's been two more in other states. Yeah, well, and we, we give you our thoughts about that one, but it had to be short because it was late at night and Murph usually is asleep by that time, so. <laughs> they don't know that I got my pajama bottoms on underneath my shirt I'm wearing. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Hey, but guys, but that's that's where the fun stuff happens. But, um, yeah, and the other thing too, real quick, Murph, before we, get in, before we get into talking about one of our fun things, you will be appearing on CBS in oh, a show. You can't talk about it yet. Oh, I can't talk about it yet? I just got picked up uh, last night for a second episode. Well, then I will cut this part out. No, no, it's okay. I just um, just don't name the show yet. Oh, don't name the show. So we can talk about it. We just can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, not sure when it's going to be released. Originally, they were saying fall, but now they're saying late winter, early spring. So, okay, we'll see. We won't say. Is it okay to say CBS? You already did. Well, we can edit this out. Is it no, okay no, to leave okay. it in? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. If it's not, I'll hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt that they listen to our podcast. But uh, anyway, hey, well, hey the, I'll the, tell you what, the, the crew, you know, I gave them all business cards and they're like, oh, I'm going to listen to it tonight. So, all righty. Yeah. Well, we won't say anything, but uh, just suffice it to say is that um, you will, uh, if things work out, we'll be seeing you on the uh, telly. 
It just shows you how hard they are for talent. Boy, are they. Let's let's hope that this writer strike (laughs) resolves itself really soon in actors. Uh, Yeah. Wait a minute. No, no, no. Because as long as it's unscripted, I'm making money. <laughs> yeah. Well, if when they get to me and they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, that's when that's when they'll <laughs> solve the strike issue. Uh, but hey, but thank you for thank you for mentioning. Well, hey, no, it's good stuff because uh, you know we want to take credit for uh, making you into the star that you're about to be. So you got yeah. your training here. I think they felt sorry for the old hillbilly. <laughs> uh, well, hey, well, f- speaking of feeling sorry for people, I'm going to tell you a story. But first, before we get into that, Murph, I have to ask you something. Yes. Well, I got to tell you something first. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... You know we never take ourselves serious. And what section of the show do we normally do, which we we, we pass because two of the latest, latest episodes dealt with 9-11 and the terrorist attack, so we... Mm-hmm. But we decided to bring it back. And so, Sweet. so Murph, uh, if we're going to talk about that, I have to ask you one question. And what is that question? Do you know what the question is? What time is it? What time is it? Do you it's know what time, time it is? It's time for Small Town Police Blotters. Hey, in this one, I stole from A.G. Harris IV. He posted it on the Game of Crimes fan group. Hopefully you haven't read this story yet, have you? Probably not. Okay. Uh, not unless Connie read it to you. I get that. Okay, she's <laughs> well, been <picked>. busy. <laughs> well, Marf, at first this is going to sound like, what's the big deal here, right? So Indiana State Police Trooper was patrolling the area around Vincennes, Indiana, population 16,631. Salute. Uh, on Wednesday, this just happened recently. So during his patrol, uh, they came across this guy, 51-year-old John McKee. Um, he was driving a Jeep, right? Didn't seem like that was that big of a deal, but um, no, no lights, nothing. Um, pulled him over, right? So he pulled him over, showed signs of impairment. Arrested him, took him to the hospital. This is going to shock you, Murph. They found marijuana and meth in his system. What's our number one rule? Don't do meth, kids. Don't do meth. So um, he says, uh, you know, so they charge him with operating a vehicle while intoxicated with a prior conviction. So now, now here's the fun part, though. Now they release the dash cam and the body cam footage. Mm -hmm. And it shows him pulling this guy over. And after pulling this over, the, the, the trooper tells him, you know, you just can't drive these things down the road, right? So he conducts this test. Uh, that's when he, you know, he fails them. They take him for a blood test. Uh, but this is where it gets really funny, Murph. Mm-hmm. Well, funny, I guess, right? No big deal that they arrested him in a Jeep, right? Okay. What, what's wrong with the Jeep? It's the power wheels, Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> this dude is 51 years old in the middle of the night driving a power wheels down the street no reflection no lights says he's gonna go get gas for his other vehicle but there's no gas can there so well he has he has thoughts of stardom he says i've been riding these power wheels for the last nine months and you're the only one that's taken me to jail uh you know he said it may get even famous from this but i guess one of the funniest parts too murph is remember when you would arrest somebody for dui or something you'd have to tow their vehicle uh-huh. funniest part was calling a tow truck out to tow the power wheels <laughs> Was it his, or did he steal it? I think it was his. Uh, they didn't say they charged him with theft, but uh, uh, because well, what got this started too? There was another little thread going on. Guy says, "You ever arrested anybody on a John Deere?" And they're showing a you know like a little toy tractor. I said, "Well, yeah." Bex up. I arrested a guy in a John Deere forty four fifty. Guy, you know, Friday night, 
driving down the highway, no lights in a big John Deere 4450. Remember his name, too. It's like his 15th arrest for DUI. Oh, holy cow. That's yeah. that's way past felony level there. Well, they didn't have felonies back then, so it was just you know misdemeanors on top of misdemeanors. But uh, wow. they changed that. So anyway, hey. Got now, another- well, wait a minute. What's a 4450? Uh, it's a it's a it's a big one like a quad, uh, like a combine. Quad? No, no, it's a tractor. So you okay. can pull up. Uh, it's got power takeoff shaft on it. You know, good good farming implement. Got it. John Deere Green. Sure. All right. Hey Murph, this next guy did not want to go to jail. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever does. But this guy this guy gets the award. I'm telling okay. you for not wanting to go to jail. So a he was an armed robbery suspect. This happened up in Vermont, somewhere near Burlington. Okay. Again, this just happened recently. Um, he was uh, Eric Edson was wanted on accusations of robbery of a store in Burlington. Uh, actually, back in August 24th, it just happened recently, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, assaulting two police officers. So and some stealing some stuff. So. Um, what happened was, is they responded, the police responded to a man passed out in a running vehicle that matched the description of one used in a robbery a week prior, right? Mm-hmm. So when they roused him, guess what he did? He fled at a high rate of speed. He assaulted both officers with the vehicle. So now we've got a manhunt going on, right? Uh-oh. So they find him. Guess what he did? What he did? He fled on foot. Then guess what he did? Got caught? No, he stole a bicycle. Oh. Then guess what he did? <laughs> what? He stole a sailboat. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and while he's out on that sailboat, the Coast Guard goes to intercept him, and guess what he does? Jumps in the water. No, he hops in a kayak. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You can't make This is what I have to say for you. can't make this shit up. <laughs> and then, uh, so he, he uh, up by the La Moyle River, I believe, in Georgia, Vermont, about 21 miles away from Burlington. He landed the kayak, ran away, and then jumped into the river. <laughs> and swam to the southern shore where he was finally arrested by troopers and game wardens. Oh, my God. I mean, think about a sailboat. you got to know how to run one of those things to even get it off the, you know, off. The, I mean, just to get it out in the water. This is a guy that stole a car, fled on foot, stole a bicycle, stole a sailboat, um, <laughs> stole a kayak, and then swam. This guy did not want to go to jail. And what happened, Murph? He went to jail. He went to jail. What's the old saying? If you run from police, you're just going to go to jail tired, son. So, <laughs> what you're right. He gets the award. That's uh, that's the most I've I ever have never heard. had anybody work that hard to avoid getting arrested. Wow, wow. Huh. Well, hey. Well, speaking of somebody who's works hard though, um, and this is this next one um, it comes through you. Somebody used to work with, but I will tell you, if you talk about somebody who's done, you know, unlike our previous criminal who did, uh, you know, various modes, here's somebody who served our country in Vietnam, DEA, TSA, and even doing contract work. Um, as I was editing this, Murph, I got to just kind of goosebumps. It's like, what a hell of a story. Yeah. And that's, uh, and we're talking about Charles Lutz. Um, and one of the interesting things about it is when I was a brand new DEA agent stationed in Miami, you know, my first level supervisor is a group supervisor. Your second level is called an assistant special agent in charge or an ASAC. And Charles was my ASAC down in Miami. Um, I had no idea he was involved in all this stuff. And, and once he left Miami, you know, you are you get caught up in your own career. And you, some people you don't keep up with. And I didn't. I didn't realize he went and took over the Operation Snowcap program. And if you never heard of that or don't want to know what it is, well, just stay tuned because you're going to find out. But uh, his career is phenomenal. And I got to tell you, the the best thing about this entire interview is at the very end, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you don't want to miss it. It's the funniest thing out of the entire interview. It's uh, 
it's I'm just going to drop it there, but you you want to stick around. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, if you want Murphy's ego deflated, just hang on. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, it's one of the funniest things, and and uh, I've even gotten a couple emails since then. But uh, Charles has a book out. We'll talk about it during the interview. Unpopular causes: A career in service to America, and, and that is one of the most appropriate titles I've ever heard in any of these books. A career in service to America. Did you know something? And we didn't talk about this during the interview, and he sandbagged us. Did you know he won the Bronze Star? No. He didn't even tell us that. Got a picture of him getting a Bronze Star pinned on him in Vietnam. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know what we we call people heroes and patriots? This is one. This is an actual one who, even when he went to Vietnam, volunteered and went to Vietnam, and then volunteered to go in combat because he had a safe job in, you know, in the rear. And, but he um, wanted to be in it. And I guess that's where he got the bronze star. That is. But there's only one way we're going to hear about this, Murph, and I have to ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes? Yeah, people, you're not going to believe some of the stuff is getting ready to go on. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Charles, (laughs) tell us what a patriot's life is all about. I'm not going to use my traditional greeting, Murph. I don't know if you've been catching up on the Facebook stuff, but every time I would use Spanish to introduce this, people were getting Spanish ads. (laughs) 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 So I will say, let's try German, you know, guten Abend, Uh, guten Abend, Frau, Uh, uh, I said Frau, (laughs) guten Abend, Herr Murphy, you know, was ist los, you know, wo bist du? So we'll see if any German ads show up this time. You know, my response to your German is bite me. Bite me. Do you understand nine. that one? <laughs> nine. 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 Uh, I don't understand. So, uh, hey, but anyway, look, guys, welcome back. We're, we're going to dispense with the Spanish. Just just see if it messes with the ads. And uh, we have a special guest because this person has the dirt on Murph. He has come. He has decided to come clean. He is a whistleblower. He has filed protection <laughs> under the Whistleblower Podcast Act. Uh, we have granted him whistleblower protection in order for him to tell the true story. So I'm going to let you take it from there. <laughs> hey, everybody. This is, uh, you know, most of you know about my background and my career in law enforcement. And when I first joined DEA, my first posting was Miami. I got there in 1987, late 87. And, you know, you go to your enforcement group, you meet your new supervisor, what we call a group supervisor, and then his boss is known as an assistant special agent in charge or an ASAC. And I have the honor, Morgan and I have the honor of having my first ASAC in DEA on the show with us today, Charles Lutz. Charles, welcome, brother. It's good to see you here. Well, it's a pleasure to be on your uh, podcast. And I have to say, when I first learned of it, I... um, I must have been living under a rock because it was just uh, maybe six months ago. But since then, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and I, I have to say I'm very impressed. He told us that uh, he told me that Michelle Linhart was one of his favorite interviews. He found out things about her he didn't know. <laughs> she sandbagged us about where she grew up at, you know, and uh, go bears, you know, and poofed her hair. If if it had not been for poofing her hair, she never would have been on Baltimore PD and never yeah. would have been at DEA. You know, <laughs> you know, too. It's I, and I got to say this right up front. It's uh, very unusual for me to call this man Charles because it was always Mister Lutz or Hey Boss. So, uh, you know, here in our, in our twilight years, I guess, or the beginning of our twilight years, uh, we've now become good friends. Well, that's interesting. We've now become good friends. Maybe there's some adversarial stuff we can talk about. But as we do with everybody, Mr. Lutz, Charles, 
how did, you know, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours, how did you get started in this thing of ours? And don't tell me, I, you, I, I, well, I'm going to guess based on your age, it wasn't Miami Vice. Miami Vice didn't come on the air until years later. So how did you get started in this thing of ours called law enforcement? You know, what, what was your journey to getting into DEA? Well, actually, um, it kind of goes back to my, um, my, my Vietnam service. Um, I was, um, a, uh, graduate at Penn state university and I was commissioned an intelligence officer, which I guess is kind of an oxymoron. It's military <laughs> intelligence, right? One of the great contradictions. And, um, and I was sent to Vietnam. I actually, um, it was, it turned out to be a very good experience for me. Uh, people, ask me, uh, you know, where, where'd I grow up? And oftentimes I'll say Vietnam. Um, in, in college, I uh, was only responsible for myself and hadn't done a particularly good job of that. And here in, in Vietnam, I had men asking me, uh, what do I do now, Lieutenant? And I could tell you, you grow up real fast. But I also enjoy, I, you know, it's hard for some people to, to realize or understand, but I, I really enjoyed my tour of duty over there. And uh, I was, uh, for six months, I was an advisor to a uh, Vietnamese infantry division intelligence unit. What and, year was uh, that? Uh, that would have been 1968 to 69 I was there, but more in the uh, the the first six months of, of 1969. Were you and there during Tet? I came in just after the Tet Offensive. Okay. And the month before had been the deadliest for Americans uh, of the entire war. So I obviously was a little bit nervous landing there at Benoit Air Base. But in any event, I, 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 I enjoyed the work that I did there. And when I started looking, and you know, kind of a childhood interest of mine was was uh, law enforcement. Uh, although when I matriculated at Penn State, they in those years they didn't even have a law enforcement uh, program. So I ended up a political science major, thinking, well, maybe learning about government would help me someday. <laughs> if anybody can figure that out, man, <laughs> it doesn't really prepare you for the realities. Does it? Uh, no, it does not. But uh, in any event, um, I um, uh, I was looking around at law enforcement agencies. Actually, I have to tell you the story. It's kind of funny because I was I had just gotten out of the service. I was sitting in a in a barber shop in Philadelphia, my hometown. And my barber, who I'd known for years, was asking me, well, you know, now you got your college degree, uh, uh, Vietnam uh, service, your military service out of the way. What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm thinking about getting into law enforcement. And there's a guy sitting in a chair waiting his turn in the barber's chair. He says, uh, excuse me, he said, I, I, I think you may be somebody we're looking for. And I looked around and said, well, who are you? <laughs> it turned out to be a group supervisor with uh, – the Narcotics Bureau in those days, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, we used to call it the Bureau of Neurotics and Dangerous Drunks. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of truth to that, I think. But, and then it then it morphed uh, into drunk every afternoon. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, so in any event, he told me, you know, why don't, why don't you, you know, we're hiring, which was a, a, the magic word back in those days. And uh, so I went down to the 
customs house actually where BNDD was located. And when they told me that 10% of their agents were stationed overseas, I thought, wow, this is exactly what I'd like to do, you know, kind of focus my law enforcement career internationally. So I went home, I told my mother, she said, you have to talk to, to uh, your, your cousin, Harry, who happened to be the deputy police commissioner in Philadelphia, who I, I really didn't know very well. But anyway, she made an appointment for me. I went down and the first thing he said to me, he said, oh my God, don't get into narcotics, too much corruption. I think he was talking about New York. Hmm. Um, that was uh, the, Serpico. The they're having up there. Yeah, this was this was uh, nineteen um, six. Well, sixty nine at that time. And uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, or maybe he had some uh, corruption closer to home. I don't know. But in any event, his best friend was Secret Service. He called him on the phone. He said, "Hey, I got a guy. Uh, just the kind of person you're looking for." Um, and uh, he sent me over there. So they, this uh, sack of Secret Service told me what that was all about. But on the way home, I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. I said, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I, go I just to went in a for a haircut and I got two I, I, job offers. I got, exactly. I said, maybe if I go back for a shave, the FBI will uh, give me an offer. You know, but, Thank God you didn't do that. But, uh, well, the FBI, they were hiring lawyers and accountants and so forth. So I knew that wasn't up my alley. Yeah. So uh, the next day I went in, uh, went back to BNDD and I said, hey, I'm your guy. So um, first of all, welcome home. My dad was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. So I know what it was like to... Um, have family over there and stuff. So thank you for that. Uh, I assume it was Army is what you said, right? Yes, correct. That, which is the only branch uh, to be in, by the way. Who mm-hmm. Go Army, beat Navy. Um, but w- what out of that, you went through Penn State, was it was it the ROTC program that you got yeah. your commission through? Okay. Yes, it was. Yeah, so when you, when you were over there, were you, uh, kind of tell us about some of your assignments. Where were you stationed at over in Vietnam? Well, my first six months, uh, I was a Saigon warrior. Uh, I was assigned to staff jobs in uh, in Saigon, but kind of itching to get out into the field. Um, I mean, call it naive on my part, but I, you know, I had the the the, the training, the history of uh, had been taught to me of the military, the, the great military officers that, that we've had in our nation. And and I thought, you know, now's uh, this is the only war I'm ever going to have. And if I'm going to prove to myself, you know, that I that I have the courage to do this and uh, I, I got to get out in the field. So one night I was in a bar in Saigon and I'm with a couple of my buddies and I probably had too much to, uh, to drink. And I so I said, you know, if if uh, if they had me out in the field, uh, this war had been over years ago. <laughs> and there's some guy again uh, says, "Hey, uh, Lieutenant," he said, uh, "Maybe I can help you." Oh yeah, well, who are you? Well, it turned out to be a sergeant at the the military advisory command, MACV, and he said, "Hey, I'll I'll exchange you with the next uh, guy that's coming in to go out to the field." I said, hey, you do that. I wrote on a bar napkin. I wrote my name and my unit, serial number and all that, and gave it to him. Forgot all about it. A couple of weeks later, I get orders to go to a place called Swanlock that I'd never even, I couldn't even pronounce. And um, I got my wish. I got out to the field. And, and, and I did get my taste of combat and uh, 
and I survived it. So, I, uh, you know, I'm, overall, like I, I mentioned before, it was a very good experience for me. Yeah. Um, when I went through, I went through ROTC in college, but to join the advanced program, we went through basic training to begin with, join the reserves. Several of my drill instructors, my DIs, uh, were 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 Vietnam vets. They had the CIB, the Combat Infantry Badge. They had been in the shit. You know, they'd been there. And just, uh, you know, they rarely, the thing is, like my dad, that folks rarely talked about it. You know, it was a, uh, it was a tough time. Well, I, you know, my uh, claim to fame, I guess you could say, is I, I used to run these, uh, what they call Firefly missions. And I would go up with a, in a Huey helicopter that had a, a searchlight on it and overhead was flying one or two Cobra gunships. So you were a bullet magnet is what you were, right? Well, exactly. I used to sit on my helmet. Helmet, sit on the steel pod, yeah. Because I figured the only thing they could see from the ground was the light, and I'm sitting right next to it. Ooh. Ooh. Did you ever, did you ever sit there and think on – what the hell did I do when I asked for this move? <laughs> <laughs> now, a few times. Uh, yeah, I bet. It, it reminds I, me of Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell when we're talking to them about, you know, working down on uh, the Cali cartel and they went out into the cane field to meet, you know, Jorge Salcedo. And it's like, what the hell were we thinking? <laughs> yeah, I, I had a few of those moments. but <sighs> mm, Man. So, um, but the reason I asked you that I wanted to ask you is, did how much of that prepared you for what you were about to do with BNDD and later? How many how many of those lessons did you pull out of that and were able to pull forward into the work that you ended up doing? Well, I, I think first of all it was the self confidence that that came from surviving that uh, uh, situation, uh, but I, also the discipline and um, uh, you know the the um, uh, I think my military experience actually resulted in a lot of the assignments that I ended up getting throughout my career. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there was some leadership involved in there, some leadership lessons. Well, I like to think so. Yeah. Hey, you're a good leader. I'll vouch for you. I worked for you. <laughs> I, I was a good maker of leaders. Uh, I, I was the one that trained future leaders because if they could deal with me, they could deal with anybody. Isn't I have that my the answer. truth. Oh my gosh! God bless those people that went through your class. Hey, wait till yeah, wait till you see who was in my academy class and how they survived. Um, but so, but you, you so you, you like I said you go through, you get your haircut, you get a couple job offers. Um, so Secret Service BNDD. And you, you, you were talking about making that decision. Let's talk about that. What, which one appealed to you and why? Well, the, the, the BNDD was the overwhelming choice because of the, over, the so overseas opportunity. Uh, I don't think there's any other federal agency, certainly not in that day, that had the presence overseas that um, BNDD, now DEA, has. And that was uh, where I wanted uh, my career to go. You know, and I think it's still like that. I think DEA still has the largest footprint outside the United States of any federal law enforcement agency in the United States. In, including the Bureau and other legats? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, like when I was in Columbia, there were two legats. We had, I think back then we had 23 agents uh, in Columbia. And that, now they do have the res, the Resolution 6 agents down in Mexico, which is beefed up. And I'm sure they've beefed up some of their other posts, but uh, DEA still has the largest footprint. Wow. Well, we know they only needed two to fight the war on drugs in Colombia, you and JP. So uh. <laughs> that's it. It's all over. Of course, of course, BNDD had a novel idea that you had to learn 
how to be a, a criminal investigator before you could go overseas mm-hmm. and help foreign police be uh, drug investigators. So I started out in Philadelphia, and uh, the first opportunity I got, I applied for an overseas position. So give us an example of kind of back in those days. What what were the kind of cases you were working in Philly? Because, you know, we actually had uh, Pete Charette on. We we're talking about the French Connection. You know, we've talked about other folks. What kind of case, what kind, what was the main focus of BNDD, you know, in that, uh, which I guess would now be the early 70s, right, is when you started? Yes, exactly. And, you know, President Nixon um, had his, at least the media called it his war on drugs. It was actually a heroin epidemic back in those days. And uh, Philadelphia, uh, that, that's what we uh, targeted was, uh, was heroin. And, um, of course, undercover was um, essential. Uh, I guess it's, you know, they call um, uh, drug uh, cases uh, victimless crimes. Certainly there are a lot of victims, but uh, it's, it's called that because uh, not many drug dealers are going to call the cops on themselves, and the users certainly don't uh, call the cops on their suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in, in narcotics work, uh, at least in those days, now, now it, there's a lot of technology involved that we didn't have in those days. In our day, uh, you worked undercover. If, in effect, you had the crook commit the crime in front of you and then complain to a jury that he broke the law. No better evidence than having a, a law enforcement officer testifying to the facts. But I have to say, I, I, I did a lot of, uh, I tried to do a lot of undercover work. I was not very successful initially. Why? Um, well, I, I, I guess uh, some people are much better at it than I. It's like acting. And some people, it just comes naturally and others have to work at it. I, I had to work at it. And, uh, well, how and many years have you acted like you like Murph? I mean, that's there's some good acting right there. <laughs> yeah, he deserves a cameo. An Emmy, cameo. <laughs> an, an Emmy for the cameo. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. Well, I, I think, for one thing, most of the heroin dealers in Philadelphia were either uh, black or Italian-American. And um, so uh, the, the most effective undercover agents – were of, of of that tribe, you know, and uh, uh, as a uh, German, English, Irish guy, you know, in those days, it was just very difficult uh, to, to uh, infiltrate into one of these organizations, uh, have so, have any credibility at all. Hmm. So, what was your what was your what changed for you then? When when did you start getting over that hump and start making cases? Well, actually, I'm kind of embarrassed to, to say that my first successful case was a marijuana case. Mm-hmm. You know, we called it kitty dope. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of us wanted to work marijuana cases. Uh, real uh, narcs worked heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, and, and later on cocaine. Um, but I actually had 500, uh, I guess it was pounds of, of Mexican marijuana delivered to me and of all places, Memphis, Tennessee. And that was my first a- a success as an undercover agent. Hey, you got to get your feet wet somehow, right? Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. 
gives gives a gives a new meaning to walking in Memphis t- feet ten feet off a beal. <laughs> you know, smoke a little bit of that marijuana. You know, get yeah. high. Um, but, but later on, I I actually I have to boast a little bit. Um, I had an informant that introduced me uh, to a Colombian um, uh, national who um, sold me the first kilogram of cocaine ever purchased um, undercover in Philadelphia. So, wow. that, so, you know, that kind of, again, built my confidence. Yep. Do you, just randomly, do you remember how much the kilo went for back then? Yes, it was $3,000, which I thought was an incredible amount of money. Actually turned out to be pretty cheap. Uh, but at that time, I was making just slightly more than $6,000 a year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Holy cow. Not much nope. has changed, right? <laughs> what year was that? Well, that would have been probably 72, something like that. Wow. 73. So I started, I was a, I was a uniform cop in West Virginia. I started at $9,600 a year, and I thought that was pathetic. It was pathetic. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Well, I, I, my, I started off at $7 and 25 cents an hour, whatever that works out to. It's like four, you know, 14,000 a year, I think. So, but 3000 a year and you've got, or 6,000 a year and you've got dope in your hand worth three, which you could cut right and probably sell for, you know, 50 or a hundred. Right. Right. Exactly. So, um, but you, you, I mean, as you go through D, as you go through BNDD, you were there when BNDD became DEA. When did that change happen into your career? How far were you into your career when that happened? Well, in in, um, I guess, well, the uh, in 1973, mm-hmm. I applied to go overseas, and I was selected to go to Thailand. I'm sure largely because of my experience in in Vietnam. And was that also because that was a source of supply for heroin? At the time on the East Coast, yes, uh, the Golden Triangle was the predominant source for um, uh, heroin. And um, so, you know, it it was of interest to me to go over there. So anyway, I applied. I had been working undercover again on a case against some... He was really a mope, I have to say, but he had some connections to organize, Italian organized crime in Philadelphia. And um, I made a couple of purchases. It was actually uh, pills some, of some sort. And so we, we were following him, trying to find his source of supply when I got notified that I'd been selected and had the report for Thai language school. So we had to take the case down. And so we took this this, this guy off and figured, you know, we had enough charges on him through the couple of buys I'd made we could prosecute him, thought we might be able to flip him. And uh, so at that day, of course, back in those days, we didn't have cell phones and things like that. The guy had a telephone book in his pocket and in there, well, well, I should back up a little bit. Uh, uh, The, uh, I guess at that time, BNDD, they they had an a undercover phone put in uh, our apartment, and my wife used to answer it when I wasn't around, you know, to kind of make it seem like we were normal uh, people. And when we took this guy down, he had my undercover name in his book uh, and my my phone number, and below that, he had written in my actual address. 
So apparently he had a connection with New Jersey Beltel. I was living right across the river from Philadelphia at the time. And um, they must have had a connection with New Jersey Beltel and, and got my, my real address. So, of course, uh, the sack in Philadelphia said, hey, you got to get out of there. My wife had just had a baby. Um, but the timing was good in the sense that I was headed for language school anyway. So I left uh, Joy, my wife, at, with her mother uh, and uh, went down to Thai language school. Well, it was while I was down there that um, the, um, uh, I guess, exec Executive Order 1 uh, created the Drug Enforcement Administration. The idea was to stop the bickering between customs and BNDD. It didn't work. Um, but, well, it didn't work because they never defined, in my view, they never defined the border. So without having done that, customs, you know, DEA ended up with everything domestically and internationally. But because the, the border wasn't defined, customs would stretch it down to, say, Colombia to bring back cocaine to the border. And then once they got it on the border, they would stretch it to the Midwest to deliver it to some, some guy and knock him off. So they were, you know, and so the, the, the bickering never ended. Uh, but anyway, to this day, it's still ongoing. Yeah. But DEA was uh, created. By that time, I have to say, I, I was a, um, a, a GS-11 agent, and GS-12 was the journeyman level. And I went to language school as an 11, that, and my supervisor, a guy named John Wilder, tremendous uh, fellow, uh, you know, he, he had the say as to whether I was going to be promoted or not. Uh, and I figured, well, that's not going to happen because he is uh, going to give that to somebody who's working for him. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm gone. Well, he promoted me. And, uh, and that got me to Bangkok as a journeyman. And I happened to be, uh, end up being one of the senior agents in Bangkok when they came out with a senior uh, position, you know, GS 13 level. So I got that. So here I am, um, you know, with, with barely, you know, five, six years on the, on the job and I'm a GS 13 senior agent. So now, that, that now all worked out very well for me. Now you're up to like $7,500 a year, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're rolling in the dough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Charles, you mentioned a while ago the Golden Triangle. Can you tell our listeners what countries comprise that? <clears throat> well, it's, it's northern Thailand, uh, northern Laos, and um, basically the Shan state of Burma, which is now Myanmar. Myanmar, yeah. <laughs> yeah and so. they, at that time, were producing the majority of the opium poppy in the world from which um, the opium is, is, uh, is extracted and then chemically um, transformed into, into morphine and heroin. Yeah. Hey, where'd you go to through language school at? Where'd they send you to? At the Foreign Institute of State Department in- Down in, in Roslyn? Uh, Roslyn, Virginia, yes. Yeah. Woohoo! Woohoo! yeah. A lot, of, a lot of good stuff goes through there. Yeah, it was a good school. Yeah. I, when I went through Spanish school there, the guys that were learning to speak Thai, 
I remember you remember Joe Reagan. I don't know if you remember him or not on the job. I don't. He was going through the Thai language school, and we were probably Spanish was six months. I think his was nine months, and we were probably at month three or four. And he got excited one day because we're going on the train heading back to our apartments, and he's like, "Hey, I can finally say my name." <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. You know, Thai was very difficult for a lot of us, and uh, um, the problem is, that, first of all, there's no connection. With English. romantic language with English or Spanish or whatever. And it's a tonal language, which is something that you, you, you just, uh, you grow up hearing, you know, the, the young Thai, uh, hears the tones and understands it. For example, the word ma, depending on the tone means either come, uh, doctor or horse. <laughs> It's very so. much like Vietnamese. I, we had a big Vietnamese community when I was a trooper um, because of the uh, beef plants and other stuff. And it was like one of the folks, one of the folks we worked with, had basically fluent in Vietnamese, but it took him years. But to your point, yeah, one word depending on the diphthong, the voice inflection could mean five, ten different things. All I remembered how to say was "bang lai," and that was driver's license. That was the one phrase I figured out. So, but man, that's got to be tough. Like I said, it's not like you know, like you say, if you if you knew Spanish, you could pick up some Italian, you know, or things like that, you know, vice versa. But that is so tough. So how? So when you got out, how? Um, you know, you go to Bangkok. So, how is it taking the family over there? You're, you're, you know, new father, got kids, you know, heading over there. What's it like to go to a, your first foreign country? Well, we uh, we went over there. My wife, uh, we look back on it now. We say, how in the world could we have taken our fir- the, the first grandchild of either of our parents? Uh, away from them, halfway around the world to a place they probably never had heard of before. Um, so it, it, it was difficult for my wife, but she never complained. And I, all I, I have to say, I was just looking at my career, my future, you know, uh, my ambitions. So I was oblivious to it. And, and our nine-month-old daughter, of course, she was just happy to get all the attention. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, we get over to Bangkok. Uh, we're put in a beautiful uh, luxury hotel uh, suite. And um, in fact, our daughter took her first steps in the hallway at that hotel. But the first morning, okay, now this is after nine months of Thai language training. And about what year is this? This, this would have been 1970, January 74. And the Vietnam War is still going on for like another year. Well, it, it is, but it's our, kind of winding our down, right? combat troops are, are, right. have been pulled out by then. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I had to get to the American embassy, and uh, I didn't want to take a embassy limo because it was expensive. So I figured, well, I'll just go out on the street and, and uh, fly down a taxi. So I go out, and <clears throat> first taxi comes along. I wave them down. Rosanna window, and I said in my best tie, how much money to the American embassy? He looks at me, he goes, no speak English, rolls up the window and drives off. And I thought, nine months of my life for nothing. I ended up walking to the embassy. I was... So uh, anyway, obviously, he was not expecting a Westerner to be speaking Thai. And, uh, and obviously, my, my Thai was not, you know, 
perfect. You might have so. been asking for a writer, asking him for to stab you in the nose with the plastic yeah. fork. Hell, you well, don't, don't know. know. How much? How much? I want to buy your daughter. How much is she? <laughs> Not for sale. <laughs> hey, so, um, so tell us what was it like. You know, I mean, you weren't, you were not that far, you were far away, but not that far away. You'd been over in Vietnam. Now you're kind of returning kind of in the same area. Um, what was it like working cases there now in, in Thailand? What was, what was your work like? Well, it, it was uh, incredible. I mean, you, you couldn't, I mean, you, you could go to any cab driver in, in Bangkok and have them take you somewhere to buy a kilo of heroin. Uh, the heroin was selling for about 5,000 a, a kilo. It was, it was, we were just falling over cases. Um, but in fact, my first, the first case I worked on, my, my senior partner that I was assigned to is a guy named Bud Schof. And, um, Bud had a case going at a hotel in Bangkok. He had an informant, um, who there were, there were, uh, there was a German lady and a, and a fella from, uh, Washington State, Seattle, who were there to pick up heroin from Bud's informant. So we, they were in a hotel room in Bangkok. I went in uh, and kind of ran the uh, uh, command center in another room in the hotel. And um, But it kind of turned everything I had learned in Philadelphia and in, in, in basic training on its head. Because, you know, we were always taught you go for the source of supply, you work your way up, you, you know, you, you buy some dope from, from a, a dealer, you try and flip him to get him to introduce you to his source and, and flip th that source to get up the next uh, rung in the ladder. Well, in Bangkok, the whole idea wasn't to go after the source because they were everywhere. Um, the idea was to work it downstream. For example, these two people are there to buy heroin. Well, we wanted to find out who they were delivering it to in the States. So it kind of reversed the process. Well, tell us about a big, so was it that the Thai government, how much of an interest did they have in stopping this, you know, or working on this? Because Look, there's some challenges even today when you think about – now, they've come a long ways when we talk about things like sex tourism and a lot of things that were going on in Bangkok and some of the other things. How invested were they in stopping this? The, the government itself uh, was not. It was uh, – there was corruption. Uh, in fact, it's, it's systemic in, in Thailand in those days because it actually went back to the – to the days, uh, you know, hundreds of years before where kings would send their representatives out into the provinces and the people who they governed were expected to care for them. Well, who could do that? Well, the, the merchants, basically. And so they got all the services. Well, by 1973, the most wealthy merchants were the drug dealers. So they got all the services and, um, and the, the the government was was totally corrupted, except to say that uh, there were a few very honest cops uh, that, w and that was kind of our challenge to find honest cops that we could work with, and and we did. How did you uh, vet them? <clears throat> You know, we 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 didn't. Uh, it was just um, it, it, the experience of working with them over time. And and let me let me tell you how that 
evolved. Okay, um, we, uh, as I said, the greatest challenge to me was 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 finding honest cops to work with. I went back to Thailand. I'm getting way ahead of the story, but I, I went back to Thailand in charge of of all of our Southeast Asian operations. Twenty years later, and I was amazed because one of the first things I did was go to a conference in Japan with other uh, law enforcement uh, agencies from around the region, and I'm sitting in a room, um, and the the Japanese, the the South Koreans, the Malay, they're all. Every time a question would come up, they would turn to the Thai and say, "What what would you do? What should we do?" And I thought this is truly uh, amazing and a, and an example of what can happen with, in this case, DEA working hand in glove with these officers throughout their career we were able to change the whole environment there to one of corruption to respect uh, by other nations it's amazing i i know one country that wasn't at your conference north korea <laughs> well that's true <laughs> or china <laughs> or china yeah hey well um so we'll get into that but that kind of begs the question i mean you have been to many different places let's not get too far ahead but let's talk about just real quickly kind of bookend it how many different countries did you work in uh, during your time with dea well well i i lived in two uh, overseas but i worked in I think one time I counted them all up, probably 52 countries that I actually worked in. Wow. Well, and that's because when, when um, so you're stationed in one location, especially if you're the boss, you're responsible for multiple, multiple countries within that region. And it requires you to go there. You have to establish relationships with the head of the law enforcement agencies for the whole country. I mean, it's, these are some very, very high level meetings that you're expected to, to initiate and, to, and cultivate. Well, I, I lived in Thailand twice, uh, a total of about, almost eight years. I was in uh, the Middle East, and uh, and Joy, um, unbelievably, had our two young daughters uh, by then um, with her, and I had acquired a regional responsibility. I had almost every country in the Middle East, and of course, in those days, Beirut was the center. I mean, not only was there a war going on, but they were the principal uh, supplier of hashish and of heroin uh, produced in the, in the Middle East. So I spent most of my time in Beirut and these other countries, and my wife spent her time in Cairo raising our two daughters. Yeah, we're, we're going to give some special recognition to Joy at the end of this interview because she put up with the, oh, well, all of our wives put up with a lot of yeah, crap true. for what oh, allows oh. us to do our jobs. So what year were you over there in uh, Egypt? When, when when would you have been? Because I'm thinking about, were you there during the time? I think it was 83 when they had the uh, Marine barracks bombing. Uh, I was there. Uh, well, you're okay, you're talking about Beirut. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you, I know right. stationed at when you're in the Middle East, but uh, when Beirut was under your, uh, you know, area of responsibility, were you there during the barracks bombing? I, I was not. I was there in in the Middle East from seventy nine to eighty one. Oh, a couple years before had. Yeah. Okay, but 
shortly after I got to uh, uh, Egypt is when uh, the Iranians took our the Americans hostages. hostage in, uh, in Tehran. And the Ayatollah was calling for all of the um, uh, Muslims to rise up and slay the Americans. So this was not a great time to be living as an American in, an, in, a, in, a, in a Middle Eastern country. Although uh, I learned later that, uh, and we didn't know much about Islam, so we didn't know that, for example, the uh, Egyptians are Sunni, I guess, and and uh, they, they 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 do everything in Shia, and they they don't agree on anything. So the fact that the Ayatollah is calling for Americans to be slain is not something that, that resonated with the Egyptians. We didn't know that at the time. It was very tense. Did you have any issues with your personal security during that time over there because of that? Uh, well, I one one funny uh, incident uh, wasn't funny at the time, but uh, of course in our house we lived in a community called Mahdi, which is a suburb of Cairo, and um, we had uh, guards, locals that, uh, on our house. They they weren't armed, but they were just there to, I guess, holler if so, you know, if something happened. But in any event, one night. Huh. Here uh, comes twenty people with AK forty sevens. You're all going to die. Bye. Run. Well, well, one one night, um, we're awakened by scuffling just outside of our bedroom window, and I get up and I pull the curtain, and here there's three or four uh, men carrying our uh, our Boab, our our guard, down the street and around a corner. And I thought, oh, my God, they're coming back for us next. So I called the um, um, embassy uh, marine security guard. Post, thought, everybody's hey. always post one, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And I, I said, hey, uh, uh, they just carried my my guard <laughs> off. You got to send, send somebody out here, you know. So it took quite a while. Finally, one of the regional security officers, men, showed up at the door and he apologized for taking so long, but he said I wanted to, you know, find out what was going on, and he told me. So he left, and I sat my wife down. Uh, we, you know, we had barricaded the house. We had, you know, hey, were you and, uh, you allowed to carry weapons? Were you? Oh armed? yeah, I had I had my uh, pistol with me, uh, and uh, so I sat my wife down. and I said, "You're not going to believe this, but our guard he welched on a bet." So they were carrying them off to tune them up to get their money back. <laughs> and did he come back to work? I know what happened because I read he, the book. <laughs> yeah, he, he did. He uh, he came back, but um, too embarrassed to say anything about it. You yeah. mentioned that, Murph, we forgot to start off. You forgot to do your proper intro. Tell, tell everybody about the book. That's right. So there's a book out called Unpopular Causes, A Career in Service to America by Charles Harry Lutz. And that's our guest today. Uh, I've read through the book. It's exciting. It shows you uh, a patriot who dedicated his entire professional life to serving his fellow man here in the United States, doing his best to protect our country, not only in the military, but then in DEA. And it didn't stop there, but I don't want to get too far ahead of the story because we want to talk about your careers, plural, after DEA. Yeah, we'll get into that. So um, while you were there in Cairo, um, did you get? Did you go out and take advantage of the local sites? Did you go out and visit the pyramids? You know, 
Um, go visit uh, the place where Giza cotton is made, you know, at the mouth of the Nile, any of that good stuff? Yeah, we, we, we did. Um, took advantage of it. We didn't, uh, you know, go on an African safari because we honestly couldn't afford it. Um, but uh, around Egypt, we, we went uh, to, um, uh, I forget the name of the place where they, from World War II, they have a German and a British cemetery. Um, is that and, over in and, uh, Tunisia or? No, no, no. In, in, in Egypt. Oh, in Egypt. Um, okay. Yeah. And I took my family to Cyprus for a vacation. And um, so, you know, it wasn't all work. Most of it was work, but not all of it. So in, in Egypt, what was your focus there? Well, that's how I ended up with a regional responsibility. When I when I applied for the job, uh, in fact, we'd only been back from Bangkok one year. I was in international training at the I'm sorry, domestic training at the time. And um, I, uh, I, uh, well, I, I should go back and, and tell you that in Bangkok, I was very fortunate. I had a couple of cases that got uh, recognition, attorney general's award, uh, uh, presidential citation, that sort of thing. So the administrator, Peter Benzinger, uh, knew who I was. And I saw this advertisement, for, and, and I just missed out in Bangkok uh, in getting promoted to a supervisory position. And so uh, I saw this ad for uh, the, the agent in charge in Cairo, and I didn't realize at the time that the agent there had been basically restricted to Egypt. The ambassador didn't want him there, didn't want a DEA office, and convinced uh, he, he – I mean, as I put it in my book, uh, Benzinger uh, shoved, diplomatically shoved the DEA office down the ambassador's throat, and the ambassador um, – uh, his 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 one demand was that if there's not enough for him to do in in Egypt, then he didn't belong there. So they agreed he would just stay there. Well, I got there, and there was nothing to do. Egypt is a drug consuming country. Uh, methamphetamine was a problem. It had been introduced by the British um, to the workers of the Aswan Dam, so that was a huge uh, problem. And they also produced some opium, but it was all consumed domestically. The big drug of abuse was hashish, and that all came from Lebanon and was consumed, of course, in, in Egypt. So there's really nothing to do uh, other than, a, you know, some hash cases of boats bringing in or camels, you know, bringing in uh, hashish. And I, I didn't want to spend two years of my life doing that. I can just I just made a bus today. We took a camel down with uh, four kilos of hash on it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, being overseas to me meant protecting our own country. You know, we were working with these nations, uh, law enforcement authorities, helping them to help us. And, uh, and of course, uh, that was just simply not the case in Egypt. So I got an opportunity early on to go to a conference in Paris, and I convinced my boss there to give me some responsibility. When, when uh, Beirut fell, they closed the Beirut office because an agent had been kidnapped 
uh, under the presumption he was a CIA case officer. They finally released him, but DEA thought it was just simply too dangerous to maintain DEA agents there. And, and they were not, obviously, it was in the middle of a war, so they weren't uh, accomplishing much. And so they closed the office. Well, when they did, they gave all of the Middle East to Turkey. Well, Terry Dunn was the attache there. Turkey was a huge source of opium. Um, and I convinced the bosses there, I said, this is crazy, you know, to have uh, Turkey responsible for all these other countries. They got enough to do in Turkey. So um, they said, well, you're, you can't leave um, Cairo. And I said, well, that we have a new ambassador. Let me give it a try. He may not know anything about it. So they said, okay. So they gave me, I'm here, I'm a one-man office, right? The only one in DEA at the time. They gave me not only Lebanon, Cyprus, uh, uh, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and all of East Africa. I mean, I'm one guy. Be careful but, what you uh, ask for. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but it actually, it, it worked out fine. I was able to lay the groundwork for an eventual office in Nicosia. And as I said before, I spent most of my time in, in, uh, in Beirut. I did get one trip into Africa to, to the uh, Sudan. Well, I'll tell you, you were speaking of that too. That reminded me too. I had to look up, just check the dates, but Beirut was a bad place. You talked about, they thought he was a case officer. They actually ended up kidnapping the chief of station in Beirut in 1984, William F. Buckley. He was in captivity for 14 months and died. In captivity in, in 1980, it, it was a dangerous, I mean, that was, like you say, that was one dangerous place. Well, the the ambassador there gave me an office within the embassy, and I guess it was a, within a year of my leaving Cairo, transferring back to the States, that the, um, the embassy was blown up, and it was actually on that side of the building where my office was. But, you know, I remember when I used to go over there, the regional security officer would loan me a pistol, but he said, uh, "If you're going, if you're walking down the street and somebody bumps into you, say excuse me and keep walking because I'll guarantee you they're better armed than you are with your little thirty-eight <laughs> pistol." I got to tell you, one of the funniest things I saw, and it, it speaks to why not one of the well, funny in a different way, but. Everybody's got their own sense of humor based on where they are, you know, like culturally. And there was shit being blown up, you know, still stuff happening in Egypt. But one of the prank shows they did, they showed this guy. It was in Cairo. He's he's there and there's people there. He walks up with a briefcase and sets it down and looks at him and starts running away, basically saying it's a bomb and watching everybody react to it. I'm going, good Lord, you guys think that's funny over there? And for some reason, they thought that was hilarious to make people believe there was a bomb in a suitcase. Yeah. And it was like candid camera, except candid boom, you know? Mm. Uh, that's not smart. Well, if I may, I, uh, we kind of skipped over uh, Thailand in terms of the the cases over there. I don't well, know. No, let's let's can let's talk about that. Go back to that or not? Yeah, yeah. Let's. Yeah. Well, you talked. I mean, you 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 kind of sandbagged us there. You said, "Well, I got the presidential citation and the AG." Let's talk about that case then. Well, Oh, sorry, I, I hit the wrong, I don't know, I hit something on my keyboard, and it was like, oh, there we go, there's the, I'll have to edit that out, but um, thank you very much, I'll be here all week. Try the wheel. Well, um, I, I actually, uh, as I said before, there are so many cases 
Um, it's just hard to pick out a few, but uh, there were two in particular. One, I finally was able to work undercover successfully on a heroin case. Uh, and uh, it was actually um, early on uh, in my tour of duty there when I was introduced to an informant who was able to introduce me on the, uh, undercover to um, the, the fellow who, according to DEA documents, had actually been the first person to ever uh, uh, create Asian heroin, white uh, Asian heroin, China white, and um, a guy named Sukrisa Kripram. And uh, I was actually, um, you know, I, I, I worked undercover with uh, Maddie Marr, uh, who you may know. Uh, and, um, and we ended up by, well, we seized not only, we seized 25 kilograms of, of heroin. Actually, it was, uh, uh, it wasn't China white. It was the, the smoking heroin, uh, but 25 pounds of it was a, was a lot of heroin needless to say and we arrested Sukri and also um, his partner in crime a guy named Hoi Sewan who had uh, put a a, um, uh, a a threat out on agents who had seized I think 90 some kilograms of his heroin in Southern California so uh, that that was quite a case we were very fortunate in that um, there was a heroin conference going on with some people from the White House, and Maddie and I were asked to go and uh, brief them on this case that had just just been taken down. And um, so they went back and, and, and wrote letters to Maddie and I, signed by Gerald Ford. So that that was uh, so I, I was able to to prove to my Philadelphia colleagues that I had finally made a heroin case. <laughs> <laughs> hey, real quickly, um, you mentioned something interesting. You said he was the first guy to come up to to turn this you know this China white. Was he a chemist or was he more of a businessman that knew how to get the chemist to do the stuff? Uh, he was he was a chemist by training. Uh, he owned a company that uh, was called Analabs that actually. Uh, would test commodities for its purity and so forth. Uh, you know, a shipload of molasses they were going, they would test it to make sure that uh, what was in the cargo hold was was molasses, was pure, and what it weighed and so forth before someone would would buy it. And uh, that, but he was a, he was a chemist, and and he looked he looked more like a pharmacist to me than a than a heroin dealer. But he was big time. Uh, and, and and speaking of corruption, a couple of months after he was arrested, um, they let him go. He fled, and we never found him. Um, Hoi Sewan was actually a Malaysian. He didn't have any connections there in Thailand, so he he uh, probably died in prison. But uh, Sukri uh, uh, got away. Uh, of course, we never heard from him again. So uh, maybe we he never went in, back into the heroin business. I don't know. Did you ever get any chatter that he was still alive, you know, anywhere? Well, we we, we looked for him. I had information he was actually had fled to Aranya Pratet, which is a, a town on the Cambodian border with, uh, in Thailand. And uh, 
So I actually wanted investigative assistance, and I went up there and spent a couple of days at a picture of Sucre and uh, checked out all the bars and massage parlors and whatever, see if we could find them, and, and, and we never did. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.